Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Welcome back to the Muslim Matters Podcast, where we discuss everything under the sun that affects Muslims, such as faith, local and global politics, social media, sex education, civil rights, and family matters, all coming from a traditional Orthodox perspective. Subscribe to our podcast and follow us online on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram on our handle, Muslim Matters. And check out our site daily at muslimmatters.org. Assalamu alaikum and welcome to another episode of Justice for All Now on Muslim Matters Podcast. I'm your host, Hena Zaberi. Today we'll be discussing the African American and Islam, past, present, and future. My guests today are Sister Islah Abdul Rahim and Sheikh Mohammed Jaber. Welcome to both of you. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum assalam, Sister Islah. Assalamu alaikum, Sheikh. Wa alaikum assalam, rahmatullahi barakatuh. So, just a brief bio of our um, our sister here, Sister Islah Abdurrahim, is a writer, an artist, and an educator who converted to Islam in 1976. Her work in Islamic and secular education is informed by her belief that it is her moral imperative to seek the truth persistently and act on it faithfully. Currently a PhD candidate in Islamic sciences, she has earned degrees in English, education and administration from Coppin State University and John Hopkins University. She's also the author of two books, The Islamic Book of Lists and Random Lamentations, Protest Chants and Affirmations. Thank you so much for being here, Sister Alhamdulillah. Our other esteemed guest is Sheikh Mohammed Jabir. Um, Mohammed uh, ibn Hisham Jabir is a forensic historian with a special interest in Islamic, African, and American history. He's also the son of the late Haji Hisham Jabir, who performed the final funeral rites of Malcolm X. Sheikh Jabir formerly served as the imam for Muslim communities in New Jersey. South Carolina, and New York. Currently, Sheikh Jaber is the executive director of BIMA, the Bureau of Indigenous Muslims Affairs, Incorporated. Jazakallah khair. Thank you so much for, for taking time of you, both of your busy schedules, for being with us here today. Thank you, um, Thank you for having us. So my first question is directed uh, to Sheikh Jaber. Uh, Sheikh Jabir, your, I wanted to talk a little bit about your father and um, sort of get uh, this really amazing history that your family has uh, sort of out of the way so we can uh, dig deep into the rest of the conversation. Um, but your father was of uh, Sudanese origin and uh, he was the member, at, from what we read, of the um, Adeneo. Can you t- share most more about, about this organization? Um, and his, his work and how he met um, Malcolm X and, uh, um, you know, was his mentor. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Yes, um, just briefly talk about my family. Um, my great-grandfather was, came to America, to the Americas as a slave. He was captured at the age of nine uh, from the city or country of Mali. And... Um, as a very young person, you know, growing up in, in, in the slave culture, uh, he lost a lot of the culture and memory, you know, because remember he was just a, uh, a youth. But however, he uh, would pass the, the cultural uh, norms down to his, uh, his children. Uh, he actually was freed at the age of 50 and married at 50. So he had, had a, started a family at a very, very late age However, his, uh, my father's father, my grandfather, did not follow uh, an Islamic path. He uh, actually was a Baptist minister. And uh, he had hopes that my father would follow that path. However, my father, after attending Morehouse University, uh, a theological seminary to learn about the religion of Christianity, lost all hopes because of the echo of our past cultural heritage. And he joined the military and he traveled to two Muslim countries, uh, El Morocco and Algeria. And when he came back, he connected with the Adinu Lahi Universal Arabic Association. 
which was founded in 1936. That is the oldest chartered indigenous Sunni Islamic organization in America. And it was started by the late Muhammad Ezzedine, who actually uh, got his education from Al-Ashar. And uh, my father, during the time of the assassination of Hajj Malik Shabazz, a.k.a. Malcolm X, was the national imam of that organization. And of course, uh, he was the one that was uh, chose, uh, chosen to actually perform the janazah uh, because Malcolm himself was in the early stages of Islam. And the two organizations that he had formulated, the Organization for Afro-American Unity, which was not an Islamic organization, and the Muslim Mosque Incorporated, which was a Muslim organization. However, they had not been trained to facilitate the religious affairs of a Muslim. So that's how my father ended up doing the janazah. Uh, one question you asked me is, is the affiliation or the mentoring of my father to Al-Hajmi Shabazz. Uh, one thing that many journalists don't know about Hajmi Shabazz, Malcolm X, is that even before he defected from the Nation of Islam, he would secretly meet with the Sunni Muslims. Uh, occasionally, he would go to 72nd Street and Riverside Drive in New York and sit with Imam Shawarabi, uh, who was the imam or the director of that center, he would uh, sit with uh, the late Sheikh Daoud Ahmed Faisal, who started the American Muslim Mission in New York, and also my father was a part of that transition team. This is um, fascinating history, and a lot of times it gets glossed over. Sheikh Jabba, let's talk about Black Muslim history beyond Malcolm X. What are some points about the past that you wished more people were educated about? Um, we just recently finished a second edition of the book that my father wrote, I Barrett Malcolm. Um, and we was actually trying to address or answer the cry of his, of his wife, the late Betty, Ahaja Betty Shabazz, who said the black nationalists has claimed Malcolm, the liberals have claimed Malcolm, but when are the Muslims going to claim Malcolm? And we saw that as a cry or, you know, or an outcry for someone to really bring Malcolm back into the folds of, of Islam. Unfortunately, uh, people look at the transition of Malcolm as being something that is stagnant. For example, in his early uh, stages of Islamic development, he was a Pan-Africanist, he was a black nationalist, he preached uh, separatistness and things of that nature. And um, much of that uh, part of his life is still echoing uh, in the society. In fact, uh, the black power movements did not evolve until after his assassination. However, uh, much of Malcolm uh, recanting, uh, regretful uh, uh, life prior to embracing Sunni Islam has not been captured. So we wanted to actually bring the Malcolm back into the folds of Islam because if we do not do that, then people will continue to believe uh, that Malcolm was a, a hate mongler, he was a black nationalist, he was a racist and things of this nature. And truly, if we look at Malcolm's uh, transition with the Shahada, Malcolm was only a Muslim, a Sunni Muslim for nine months before his assassination. He took Shahada April uh, 8th, 1964. He made his pilgrimage and then he was assassinated uh, February 21st, 1965. And that is the Malcolm. That is the Al-Hajj Malik Shabazz that we try to, to rescue from the black nationalist uh, misinformation or misunderstanding about his life. Sister Isla. Yes. I'll ask you the same question as well. Uh, what are some points about the past that you wish more people were educated about? Alhamdulillah, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Um, in general, I think we need to revisit how history is written um we tend to still see history through a very eurocentric um judeo-christian centric perspective so at some point we the muslims would have to go back and look at history and make sure that we integrate as as <clears throat> as our brother has said you know the things that have been told in the narrative that aren't accurate, there's some things that are exaggerated. There's some things that come from a particular perspective. So in terms of what I would want or hope that we would start to look at is uh, basically going back to the accuracy of things. It's not even um, 
it's not even feasible that we would um, continue repeating the narratives that have been taught to us when we were young and in our history books. We need to re-examine that. Um, there are a lot of things that um, are, are being discovered now about our history, about um, the contributions that uh, Muslims have played in the establishment of this country, um, uh, African-American and other nationalities and ethnicities, but they all have played a, a role in the establishment of this country. And that's sort of a overlooked, glossed over, and um, we need to make sure that that is um, highlighted. Um, so, you know, in terms of, as an, as an educator, one of the things that I wish we, we understood was that because it's important to have representation in curricula. And, and when you don't see yourself, it's easy to not see the relevance. So one of my goals is to make sure that, that the ways we set up um, our curricula, our training programs for teachers, our, our educational programs are culturally responsive and do reflect the totality of our experience and do include the Muslim history in that. Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah. And currently you're conducting research. Can you share what you're working on? Alhamdulillah. Well, um, I am currently pursuing a PhD in Islamic sciences. Um, and the reason why um, I chose that, that area, alhamdulillah, is because I've been involved in teaching Islamic studies for a number of years, for decades. And I'm also an educator. And um, I wanted to look at how those two areas come together. So my dissertation is basically on the, the intersection between race, religion, and language in the Arabic acquisition processes of Black and Latino converts. So I'm looking at how um, language represents power and control, and in this case, the Arabic language, who has access to it, how, his, how it has been promoted to be um, learned among the converts, how we're being taught Arabic, um, who controls that teaching, and um, whether or not there are any cultural implications. So I've done a survey of um, close to 300 Muslims, Muslim converts, to, to determine their, um, their beliefs and feelings and dispositions about learning Arabic, their experiences, whether or not they've um, have had to deal with any um, prejudices or uh, microaggressions in the learning process. Um, how do they feel they learn best and if that's being addressed. And I'm also doing in-depth interviews with probably about, um, uh, about 15 people who have achieved some level of Arabic proficiency and who are Latino and Black um, Muslim converts in the West. And I'm trying to find out how their experiences relate to what the surveys are saying. So really, it's a new field. When I did my literature review, I found that there were no research studies on how we as Black people learn this language. And, and, and the Arabic is such a, a critical portion of our deen, understanding that Arabic, that um, you know, I wanted to make sure that I went back and tried to capture this. So I'm hoping that this will be the start of other researchers coming behind me and, and um, improving on what I come up with and also um, opening the doors for further research. Powerful stuff. I wanted to talk a little bit about the past. Um, often we are told that uh, African-American uh, Muslim history started um, perhaps a couple of decades ago, maybe a hundred years ago. But we all know that that's a false narrative that c continues to be pushed out, uh, part of the Islamophobia um, to make all Muslims um, be, labeled as foreigners. So as far as um, your, both of your uh, experiences and uh, your studies, 
could you share with us where do you believe Islam? How did Islam come to the United States and what part um, have been retained um, from that time? Um, so if Sheikh Jaber, if you could go first. Well, I want to just say something before we go into that. Um, uh, when we're talking about Islam in America, uh, we have to set a standard. What is Islam and how are we viewing Islam? Because anything that has a label on it or, or ascribed to Islam does not fit the standard of the Quran and the Sunnah. And I'm saying that to say that uh, history as a Muslim goes all the way back to the 1920s, okay? And that uh, when we talk about the culture of Islam, the Adinulahi Jama'it al Arabiyat Umamiyat or the Adinulahi Universal Arab Association was never void of, of any of the cultural uh, support, such as the Arabic language. Uh, we were learning Arabic in the 1920s and 30s and 40s. I took Arabic in that country because I was located in an Islamic village. So I wanted to ask uh, Sheikh Jaber about his experiences with what Sister Islam was talking about before the break, about Arabic and its um, the use, learning it in the African-American community and amongst black Muslims. I am a recipient of the oldest Islamic institution, Sunni Islamic institution in America. We refer to it then as Orthodox Islam. And uh, our institution was established in 1938 by Professor Muhammad Azadeen. Um, when we talk about Islam, uh, we have to set a standard of what we mean when we say Islam. Sister Islam, well, he, um, perhaps we can uh, work on the next question while we get to Jabba Inshallah. So my question to you would be, what knowledge and aspects of Islamic heritage remained embedded in the culture of African-Americans despite the stripping of their Islamic identity as they were brought in as enslaved people? Um, you're right. There were things beyond the religion that were stripped from them. Um, so I wanted to mention that first, address mm -hmm. that, set that context, because um, for African people um, and for Muslims especially, lineage is of utmost importance. Knowing who you are and where, you know, from whom you descend is important. Knowing your history. So between the lineage that was lost and the history that was lost, that's a significant part of your identity. And then also um, certain values that may have been instilled culturally may have been compromised or lost. And I'll give the example of women, or not just women, people who were stripped and put in the holes of ships who had a sense of modesty and decorum and, and were thrown into the holes of ships like cargo, you know, that over time and the stripping of your identity and your humanity um, through, through enslavement also serves to undermine your, your sense of self. So those things um, had, a, had an effect. But there were things that we still retained, alhamdulillah. We still, even on these shores, were... Um, a law conscious, a law conscious, God conscious people, no matter what we called him, we were, we were people who were very much um, aware of the, the existence of a higher power. And um, that did not end. It's something that you cannot extinguish because it is transferred and transmitted to, uh, from generation to generation. Um, we also retained some Arabic words and phrases. Um, and I think um, a lot of people have done the research. This is not my original research, but um, names like Bilal um, being a derivative of Bailey, uh, Bailey is, um, I mean, being a derivative of Bilal and Suli, Suleiman, Solomon. Um, there were words and phrases that were... Um, carried over. But I also noticed that uh, within our religious rights, um, in, the, in the days of slavery, 
um, some of the slaves would participate in a form of worship that they called the ring shout. And they would um, circumambulate some structure, rock or tree, or they'd circumambulate um, while they were um, shuffling and um, making, uh, saying a chant. Now, some historians and scholars have likened this to making tawaf. Um, and what's interesting is that uh, the 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 ring shout was done in a counterclockwise motion, as was or as is tawaf, as is the circulation of blood in the body and other things. So it was a connection there. That divine connection was not lost with that. Um, Another thing that we retained was um, an eastward orientation, because if you look at some of the graves of slaves that were um, buried in the south, um, you see some that were, or see graveyards where the graves have a decidedly eastern orientation, burying the dead facing, facing east. Um, so that's another one. And then we also have um, certain recipes and foods like okra and things that still come through our West African traditions. Don't have as much to do with the Islamic part, but but shows you that there were things that we retained and that those enslaved people tried to hold on to. Alhamdulillah. Inshallah, could we bring Sheikh Jabber in? Yes, alaikum. Yes, Sheikh, I'd, I'd like to get your take on this as well. Um, what, uh, what knowledge do you, do you believe that was retained throughout that time despite the stripping of the Islamic identity? Uh, well, one thing is that uh, we have to understand that all of the people that came by way of the African diaspora weren't Muslim. Mm. It was like maybe one out of every three or four persons that were in the slave culture was Muslim, and we, we and that's a very uh, interesting uh, area of our experience. Why? Because if you look at the tribal conflicts that was occurring inside of the continent of Africa, you find the the Muslims, uh, in many cases, were at odds with other traditional uh, philosophies or religions inside of Africa. However, when Islam reached the shores of America in its very early stages. Uh, they were uh, enemy tribes, you know, that were, you know, on the plantation, meaning that if you were, you were Fulani or you were a Hausa or a Mandinka or something of that nature, then you would have had uh, a different uh, relationship with someone that was Yoruba or Igbo or Wangara or things of that nature. So we have, we have to make it clear that every uh, person of the African diaspora was not a Muslim. And I think that a lot of times when we talk about Islam, we speak of it in the context that possibly 90% of the slaves that came into America were Muslim. And, and that's not true. Though the, the Muslim culture and the Islamic identity was preserved more so than the non-Muslims in the first, uh, second and third generation. However, after four generations of servitude, I think that the African-American experience the, uh, uh, the slave culture erased all the cultural uh, identity from the people and they became monolithic. Um, so when we talk about Islam in America from uh, the position of people of African diaspora, it is a new introduction to the people, you know, because nowhere in the history books did it mention Muslims in the, you know, uh, standard American history text. So it appears that Islam uh, entered into America as a foreign uh, ideology or foreign religion. But we have evidence, you know, as early as the 20s, uh, uh, the brother uh, Seti Majid, who came from Sudan, and, you know, right after uh, World War I, he began to teach uh, Islam. Uh, we had something called the Moor Science Temple. Uh, he himself attacked all pseudo-Islamic groups and tried to make the correction. We have... Uh, the Ahmadiyya movement by Mufti Muhammad Sadiq. He also uh, tried to make the correction with that. What I'm saying, I'm saying this to say that Islam has been in our culture for for a hundred years, but yet we start with Islam in the 40s and 50s. Okay, when we have organizations that were established in the 30s that we have no narrative about it. For example, if I say the Adinu Lahi Universal Arabic Association, 
it's probably the first time that uh, a contemporary Muslim have heard that name. If I say Sheikh Mohammed Ezzedin, it's probably the first time they ever heard that name. And I'm saying this to say that, that there have been a great suppression of the Islamic identity. Uh, my father did a janazah for Al-Hajj Malik Shabazz. He appears in the current report for social uh, disorders. He's also in the Black History Ebony magazine. He, he appears in many, many photos, but yet his name is not mentioned. You know, they don't mention that Hajj Malik Shabazz, Malcolm X was buried by a Muslim and who were these Muslims and what was the organization and so forth. We have tons of information about the early presence in the culture. And what happens is that all of that has been circumvented and they start with Malcolm's defect of the nation of Islam and as though Malcolm obtained his true understanding of Islam when he made the pilgrimage to Mecca. You see, this is misinformation when Malcolm himself, you know, uh, knew about Muslims in America and there was a, a thriving Muslim community in America that needs to be inserted. You know, uh, people like myself have uh, not been uh, mentioned or even recognized in the historical fabric of the evolution of Islam. As I mentioned earlier, there was nothing mentioned missing in our education as a Muslim. There was never a conversion or a transformation that was needed because we started out on the Sunnah. Uh, Professor Muhammad Azadine himself came back from Egypt as a representative of, uh, of uh, Seti Majid to continue his mission. So I'm saying this to say that the, the contemporary information about the history of Islam in America has definitely not has entered into what we call the literary world. We have 617 declassified FBI files on our organization of integration and uh, uh, all types of negatives to try to stop the growth of Islam. However, when we look at uh, the life of Hajj Malik Shabazz, we take that as a standard as how Islam uh, reinvented itself in America. And I think that this is a uh, poor, uh, research. I think that uh, this says something against uh, historians who actually trying to bring the truth about what was Islam, uh, how it was uh, in the early 20s and 30s. And as Muslims, I think we have to uh, stop looking at Islam as an evolving identity or an evolving philosophy that reached this full development in the, in the uh, 1900s and so forth. We as Muslims understand that Islam was perfected during the time of the prophet, peace and blessing be upon him. And there have been pioneers who have championed that and kept Islam unadulterated uh, 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 in its pristine, pure form, even in the 20s, 30s and 40s. And they are uh, living uh, recipients of that, that no one ever come to and talk about those actual highlights in Islamic history. My next question is to you, uh, Sheikh Jaber. You've been uh, quoted before saying your, uh, your favorite surah is Surah Ikhlas and um, that Dawah is not yet there in America and that it will not be there until everyone in America understands um, the mercy and justice behind the message uh, of the surah. Um, can you tell us more about these thoughts and uh, what efforts should imams and others in, who lead uh, the Muslim community in the United States, especially the African-American community, uh, what is your message to them? Yes, um, I think we have to go back to the black power struggle in the 60s um, and the position of the Muslims. Um, I grew up in a, a diverse, integrated Islamic society um, we had uh, people in our community that was from Yemen. We had people that were in our community from Syria, from Sudan, from all over in the, in the 20s and 30s, okay? Now, my, my father himself uh, is cited in the Colonel Report, 1967 riots. Uh, he stood between the tanks, flanked with National Guards, okay, and the rioters, uh, because the mayor of that city, Lisbon, New Jersey, Dunn, had given the order shoot to kill. And he himself cartel the riot were not to destroy uh, the society. The, the position of the Muslims were not to burn down the buildings. Uh, we have always uh, operated in a society where our role is just to invite people to Islam. Uh, we have no uh, agenda of aggression, uh, you know. And again, we could not uh, totally embrace 
the black power struggle, the pan-Africanist struggle, and even Malcolm himself, uh, once he encountered one ambassador from Algeria, when he was talking about black nationalism and the struggle for social justice, he asked him, Malcolm, what does this say for the people of Morocco? What does this say for the people of Algeria? What does this say for the people of Egypt? All of those people are struggling for decolonization of Africa and they're struggling for social justice. So the platform of Malcolm had to be broadened. As, as, and again, uh, Malcolm himself, like I said, was, was actually isolated from a lot of the dynamics of Islam that was going on in America. And he said that in his heart, when he completed his Hajj, he said, I think I may be the first American Negro to perform the Hajj. Well, we had tons of Hajjs that had uh, performed Hajj. We had Abdul Rashid from Philadelphia, Lynn Hope. We had uh, uh, Hajj Wale Akram, who started the first mosque in Cleveland, who made Hajj in 1957. We had Hajj Hassan in 1952 in New York. My father had made Hajj in 1962. Uh, what I'm saying is that, but he felt that he was the first Haji that had made uh, made the pilgrimage. But because the Muslim had a different approach for social justice, uh, it wasn't a violent approach. It wasn't an aggressive approach. However, the anger was still there to fight off uh, uh, discrimination, oppression, and things of this nature. Even Leroy Jones, we know him as Amir Baraka, who my father gave shahada uh, uh, to him and his wife. Uh, uh, they had a difference of a position about bringing about social justice. They were more forceful. They were about violence. They were about burning down cities. So we felt that if we could bring Islam, right, uh, the true Islam to the society, that it would remove the stigma of a violent revolution. Even Malcolm himself said, perhaps if America could look at Islam, it would solve the race problem. So we always looked at Islam and the elements of Islam and our prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him, as being a mercy for all the nations, you know? And he suffered the worst case scenario. His, uh, his uncle Hamza, and who was also his foster brother was killed, okay, in the battle of, of Uhud by a Ethiopian, okay? And uh, him, the wife of Abu Sufyan, cut open the heart, the body of Hamza and, and, and began to eat his liver. But when they came to Islam, the Prophet them, he forgave him. Okay, he told Wahish, I forgive you, and you just can't live in Medina because it hurts me so much. What I'm saying is that if we have to look at the mercy that Islam brings, you know, we have to be able to separate uh, what has transpired in the past because we never want to be able to rectify that. Those people are to be held responsible for the injustice they, they, that they impose upon the people. Our plight is in real time today as Muslims, but we can never, uh, never, uh, 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 deviate from our Islamic principles of how to deal with the human being, even if, if in the worst case scenario of oppression, uh, injustice, discrimination, we still have to be Muslim at the end of the day and address it according to example of our Prophet Muhammad and the dictates of the Quran. Jazakallah khair for that. Sister Isla, I'd like to ask you your thoughts of the current uh, on the current state of uh, affairs of Islam in uh, the United States, in the communities that you live and work in, uh, what are some positive uh, developments that you've seen and what uh, are some things that worry you? Alhamdulillah. <clears throat> well, in terms of positives, um, Islam is growing. Um, more and more people, you know, come and take shahada. Um, Alhamdulillah. That part is good. I think that some of the masajid that have been traditionally um, uh, segregated ethnically or racially have started to um, make make um, attempts to address that, bring in a diversity and welcome people into their their congregations that are from different um, backgrounds, and that's good. Um, in terms of, and we give praise for all of that, in terms of the things that concern me, I, I liken this period to our adolescence um, in America. Um, we went through an infancy of, of coming to Islam, of people discovering um, their uh, Islamic identities, of figuring out 
as um, our brother has mentioned, what is and what isn't Islam and what is from Quran and Sunnah and what is not. And it's sort of carried over into this era where, um, and I call it our adolescence because we're trying to figure out, again, our still figuring out our identity, um, maturing into, are, are we going to follow the Sunnah, Quran and Sunnah, or are we going to follow personalities? Um, how are we going to integrate technology into the, the transmission of ilm, whereas, you know, our tradition may suggest that we work with a teacher, study with a teacher. And because of the availability of information, we don't have to necessarily um, sit with a teacher in order to get information. And um, so we have from, as, as a result of that, people who have not studied formally under someone, but who, because of technology, can, can um, command a following. So we're going to have to contend with that. We also have to look at, you know, right now, um, there are issues about the, the role of the masjid in the community. Um, and I think that technology has played a role in that, in the, in the sense that, you know, I, came, I became Muslim in the 70s. And for me, as I was telling some young, younger people the other night, the masjid was everything. You know, I couldn't wait to get there. Um, I was happy when there were, were activities at the masjid beyond just the Salat and Jumu'ah. Um, it was the center of our existence. Not so much now. You know, you have, you have Muslims who, who become Muslim and never really visit the masjid. So... Um, we have to, you know, look at how the role of the masjid is evolving and make sure that it is in align with um, the role it has played um, in Islamic tradition. So um, right now, I think that, that, oh, I'm sorry. And also one big issue, two big issues that I think that we're dealing with right now are the issues of race. Um, and gender, and how um, Islam will move from the the beliefs that well the ideals that we have been taught to the practical impl implementation of those ideals. You know, um, our young people uh, have made a lot of. Uh, comments, books, uh, statements, um, lectures about how they feel as young African-Americans, young Black people, young Latinos um, in the context of the Muslim Jama'ah, of the Muslim Ummah, and whether or not they feel validated, whether they feel welcome. And I was explaining that when I accepted Islam, you know, we were so eager we were so eager to be in this fold and, and we looked at it as almost our metaphorical North star, you know, this is the way to, to everything from liberation to um, it was our hope. And we went, we, we came in and then shortly thereafter, we started to realize that all was not as it may have appeared to be and that the practice was somewhat different and our, children and our children's children are now grappling with that. And so um, we have these issues, you know, that we have to contend with. The, our, our role in, in terms of the world, Ummah, what are we, how do we fit with that? What is our uh, responsibility toward other groups of Muslims all over the world? And a lot of this has been, or well, all of it really has been spelled out in Islam, but we are now in the we are now in the process of growing up islamically how do we actually start to implement these things you know these ideals and um what will be my generation's legacy in doing that is it because a lot of us were first generation muslims so um i think right now you know it's things are hopeful of course because you know we have islam but as we 
as we watch, and I'll call it as someone else has said, the system of the Dajjal being unfolded, as we get closer to the last days, um, we will find that there will not always be clarity unless we hold fast to the rope of Allah, unless we turn back to the traditions of the Quran and Sunnah. And so we have to make sure that we rid Islam of anything, uh, our practice of Islam of anything that's going to detract from that, inshallah. Jazakallah khair for that very uh, deep answer. Sheikh Jabber, would you like to add uh, anything for your uh, things that you're noticing um, that are some highlights and some things that are concerning you as well? Yes, Bismillah. One of the main things that concern me, especially in America, is the methodology of Dawah. Um, you know, it's, we, we are well aware that a large number of people came from Africa as slaves, were Muslims. But they lost that Islamic heritage, they lost that Islamic identity, and they lost the faith. And uh, by them coming back to Islam, I think that we, we identify the religion of Islam with ethnicity and culture, mm -hmm. which actually uh, places uh, certain segments of our society at odds uh, to the point that the misconception of Islam when it's in, in, in embraced uh, is an anti-American, you know, uh, formula, okay? And uh, it, it isolates and marginalizes other people. For, for example, how can we as people who are descendants of slaves, right, bring Islam, you know, to the society? Uh, we have to be on equal footing as we know that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he sent Moses, Musa alayhi salam, peace and blessing be upon him, not only to the children of Israel, but he sent him also to Fir'aun. Okay, so we have to break down these racial barriers that, and the misconception uh, and perception that Islam is only a religion that belongs to people of color or, a, or third world nations. And that if we can bring pure Islam, the, 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 the theology of Islam without culture and ethnicity attached to it, I think it would have a greater impact in our society that people can look at the, like the sister said, we have to go beyond personalities. We can look at the very articles of Islam, uh, the very values and principles that Islam offer. Uh, it's it's uh, problem solving us, uh, methods and so forth and so on. And, and we have to go back into history and see these examples actually uh, uh, as they were implemented during the time of the prophet, peace and blessing be upon him. As we know the Kaaba, uh, the sacred house of Mecca was attempted uh, to be destroyed by an Abyssinian by the name of Abraha. However, the first migrations of the Muslims uh, were to Abyssinia, okay, it was to uh, an Abyssinian nation. So we see that the Prophet, وسلم, peace and blessing be upon him, did not uh, allow ethnicity and cultural trends to interfere with delivering the message. And I think that if we can look at what has transpired in the past, and we can become a more forgiving people and begin to, to, to invite people to Islam as opposed to containing Islam uh, as, as a cultural uh, uh, a product and using it as an excuse to strike back and get social justice. I think that is the, the, the problem that we are running into, that some people are just closing their ears and their eyes to the beautiful message of Islam because the, the presenters of it have with it a tainted idea of racism or a... A, and the idea that Islam is going to bring about a liberation for a particular people. And I think if we can move beyond that and allow the theology of Islam to, to uh, integrate in the culture, the people will be able to look at the benefit and, and use the prophet, peace and blessing be upon him, in the proper context as the centerpiece okay, of the example of how we solve our problems. I would like to ask you, as we start talking about the future, um, things that worry us as parents, as grandparents, um, things in, when I look at just social media and how things have just changed in the past five years or um, the ideologies that are being uh, shoved down our kids' you know, faces in the name of justice um, that are totally um, counter to our, our faith. Um, and then I also look at this extreme individualism that is uh, 
preached through social media. Uh, and we know that Islam is a, an answer and a, a solution to all of these issues that we see. But um, there, there seems to be a disconnect. Um, and as some of the things that you pointed out is sometimes the messaging is wrong. Sometimes the messaging seems foreign. Um, what, uh, what does the future look like to you all? Like if you can imagine a future for the next generations that are coming into the Dean, that are staying in the Dean, um, especially when it comes to um, the, the use of using Islam as some sort of, uh, you know, like an identity label that you wear on your, your heart or your, you know, your sleeve instead of being a faith that is to be followed day in and day, uh, day out. So I'd like you guys to um, please enlighten us with your thoughts on that. I, I like to start because I think my, I'm going to have to leave you all more faster than I, I did, sister. But, you know, I, I wrote a book called Color Me Muslim. Uh, I, I did my high schooling in New York City in mm -hmm. the 70s. And I wrote this book as a survival guide to show young Muslims how to navigate in a non-Islamic society, how to say no when it is time to say no, and when it's to say yes, time to say yes. Uh, and as parents, I don't think we've, we've done enough uh, to, to actually solidify our Islamic identity in the culture. America is the type of society that, that welcomes diversity. You know, you can travel all over America and you see so many different uh, ethnic groups who have their own social expression. They go unhindered as they, you know, as they contribute to the society. And I think that as Muslims, you know, when we came to America, uh, for the most part, we were escaping the, the ill effects of socialism, uh, communism, failed governments and things of this nature. And we just wanted to get into the relaxed mode. And as a result of that, we allowed our generation to, to, to grow up in America without acknowledging the beauty of Islam because they, they, it was the countries in which we came out of was so horrific and, and so torn that uh, we, we contributed that to Islam by not understanding these other foreign elements that had destroyed the Islamic culture and society. And as a, again, the, the youth grew up without Islam. Now we have a reversion. People now realizing that all of this wasn't Islam and they're trying to now re-identify with the faith. However, their children uh, have gravitated towards the American culture. It is almost like uh, reintroducing them to Islam. And the only uh, connection they have with Islam is culture. And culture, and culture is not enough uh, to, to, to instill in a child or a youth or a young person you know, the strength to actually uh, reject the negativity in the society. I don't think we do enough as to criticize uh, the social ills that's eroding uh, the moral fabric of the society, not just for the Muslim, but for the for non-Muslims alike. Uh, we are moral physicians. Whenever we see a wrong in any form or any fashion, we should address it. And I think that we need to uh, stand as one united front when we are addressing the principles of Islam. Our weakness comes to our divisions, you know, um, and, and again, I think that ethnicity sometimes interfere. Uh, the fight that uh, uh, we had in the 60s, the fight that Al-Hajj Malik Shabazz was fighting, the fight that we experienced, I grew up in segregated schools, is not the fight that we need to be fighting today. We need to find different ways and, and, and means to, be, to, to integrate, you know, just because a person has a lighter complexion does not mean that person is an enemy to you. Okay, just because a person has darker skin does not mean he's less on the social uh, wrong than you. So as Muslims, we have to come together and create a think tank and a strategy as to how we're going to actually move forward and how we're going to rescue our youth beyond Islam being a cultural identity or a fad or a fashion and let the faith of Islam enter into their heart so that they will be able to actually contribute and, 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 and move the society forward. Jazakallah khair for your answer, and I know you have to uh, leave, so uh, Jazakallah khair for being here and um, sharing your thoughts with us. Yes. Sister Sla, I, I wanted to ask, uh, yes, go I, ahead. I just, want to, I just want to say that I'm, I'm going to Mecca Saturday, and uh, I'm going to pray for the Muslims. I've been praying for the Muslims in Medina, 
and I've been, I'm going and I'm praying for our our brothers and sisters in Turkey, and that Allah Subhanahu wa Taala, you know, strengthen them, give those who uh, lost their lives through that tragedy, give them paradise and forgive them this, their sins. They are our brothers and sisters, and we have to make dua for them and do whatever we can to support their families, inshallah. Jazakallah Thank you so much. Keep us in your du'as as well. Amen. Salam Sister Isla, I wanted to ask you, Tyree Nichols passed away. He was beaten to death. And a couple of days after his death, uh, the Muslim community found out that he had accepted Islam the year before. The reactions started coming in, and those who on principle oppose police brutality issued their statements regardless of whether he was Muslim or not. Mm -hmm. Whereas the rest decided that his life was only worth uh, it once they found out that he was a Muslim brother. This scenario really showed um, shown a spotlight on some things that we really need to work on uh, in uh, our communities um, if we want to succeed uh, in giving dawah in the future. So what are your thoughts about this as you, and if you could put that in the context as uh, about giving dawah in the future, about Islam in the black community, about justice um, in the face of adversity, especially in your role as an educator. Okay, alhamdulillah. Um, I think more education is needed. Um, knowledge can be power if it is acquired in the, you know, if, if it is acquired in, um, in a good context and used in a good way, because um, knowledge in and of itself is neutral. So you have um, people who are well-meaning and, and, you know, they see issues and they don't have sometimes enough Islamic knowledge to know how to process it process whatever is happening at the time. And so that's going to be one of our challenges for the future in terms of understanding how do we determine what is what is right, you know, what's wrong, the parameters. There's certain things that our our inner spirit may may speak to us and say to us when we see a, a wrong. And it doesn't really qualify that by saying if we see this type of wrong or that type of evil, it says when you see wrong, you have you have options in terms of how we as Muslims deal with those wrongs. We can, you know, change it with our hands, we can change it with our mouth, or we can hate it within our hearts. And and the research that I've done on that myself um, suggests that hating in your heart is not just a passive thing. It has to really do something to you physically. It should not be that you can see injustice, murder, um, oppression, and have it not affect you. And the, the more we learn our deen, the more we should be affected by those things that we see. We should become sensitized to them and not desensitized to them. But we live in a society that serves to desensitize us. So we then have to try to figure out how do we respond? Someone got murdered. That There's a natural response to that when you see someone being victimized. But sometimes we have to step back and figure out, okay, what does Islam tell us to do? Okay. There's a good side to that in that we should always check our actions and um, before proceeding with them. Our actions should be preceded by knowledge. But the bad side is that we can we can become so hesitant and um, and we can we can be um, people who are afraid of, of reacting in an authentic way because of what the masses of Muslims may say. So um, in terms of how we respond to that, 
I think that at this point we we have to go deeper with our knowledge and I go back to you know always if you're talking about putting things in a in the context of how does this relate to our future then I look at Soto Asser you know verily you know we're at loss unless you know we we have faith and, and join together um, in the in truth have patience or constant you know um, we have to decide as human beings, as Muslims, is this the deen that we're going to practice, one? And if this is the deen that we're going to practice, what does Islam actually enjoin upon us, two? And are we able to submit to that? And if we feel like we, we are having problems with that, we have another choice. Okay, do you reject that, which would be, you know, um, take you outside of, of Islam? Or do we ask Allah to help us learn how to be Muslims? A lot of us think we already know, but from what we can see in the state of the world, many of us are still learning how to be Muslims. So when we see these things, when we see oppression, what is it that we have at, in our toolbox as Muslims to correct those issues? Um, I don't think that we can just, you know, our, our role is not to just exist in this society without trying to better it, you know, and our, the betterment of this society has to come through Islam. So when you talk about issues of social justice, issues of oppression, whether they are against Muslims or not, um, there should be within our hearts and minds, a, a way that we know that we can react and respond. And and I said earlier, I think we're at our adolescent stage because we still don't know. There's so many people that are grappling with that. For me, I saw that, you know, he had, a young man had died and I have a certain response to that. Um, I do think you know, and I and what I'm hearing in in the back of my head right now are the um, things that were said historically about Muslims in America, saying that we only care about other Muslims. We only care about other Muslims, and um, I don't see Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu as being a person who only cared about the Muslims. His life did not suggest that. So I'm hoping that's not going to be our Martin takeaway. Um, he was a man who cared about humanity. And um, all mankind. All mankind. And if we kill one person, it's like we kill all of humanity. So mm -hmm. with that, I'll just say that we need to really learn our Dean, be willing to submit to what it says, have the faith that within this Dean, there are the answers to these questions that we don't have to change it, manipulate it, massage it, compromise it. The answers are there, but the answers are tied to our submission. We have to submit to this Dean in order for us to be able to implement the, the, the cures for the problems. So um, that's my takeaway, you know, and that's my, my hope is that we start to learn more and more and, and go back to really studying and trying to submit and implement this thing. Well, thank you so much for your time. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. And thank you for being with us here on the Justice for All Now show. Thank you. And I wanted to thank our producer, Asim Amin, and our assistant, um, Miriam Tisdale. Thank you all for joining us on the Justice for All Now show on Muslim Network TV. Assalamu alaikum. Thank you so much, Sister Isla and Sheikh Jaber. And to our producers, Asim and Maryam, from, from all of us at the Justice for All Now show, Jazakallah khair and Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Hey everyone, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast. And follow us online on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram on our handle, Muslim Matters. And check out our site daily at muslimmatters.org. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you in the next one, inshallah.
Assalamualaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh.